Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to jump back into our study in the book of Mark. So if you want to turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Now, I'm going to warn you that this is a sensitive topic. Uh, Jesus talks about divorce and marriage. And if you're here today and that immediately makes you nervous, let me just ask you to relax, okay? You know, stories are so important to us. We tell our kids stories, um, you know, there's a lot of stories that begin once upon a time, and then you go through the story, and it ends with, and they lived happily ever after. And it seems like we're all in pursuit of that story. I mean, the fairy tales we tell our kids and grandkids include the story of a beautiful young girl who gets cursed by an evil witch who pricks her finger on, on a spinning wheel and falls asleep for a hundred years, only to be awakened by the kiss of Prince Charming. Have you heard that story before? That's the story of Snow White. How many of you knew that already? No, Sleeping Beauty. Thank you. It's not Snow White. I got it wrong. My notes are wrong. And then there's the story of the lady with the glass slipper. Her name was, and you know it, and Cinderella lived with her evil stepmom and her stepsisters, and they treated her so unkindly that she was the maid of everybody, and the night that the prince was throwing a banquet in his effort to find a wife... She wasn't going to go, but her friendly godmother, that's not the Bible, by the way, it's a fairy tale, friendly godmother came and gave her a gorgeous dress, a pumpkin carriage, and off she goes to the ball, and wouldn't you know it, the prince notices her above all others, but it was almost midnight, and she knew that everything would go away, she'd be back to wearing her rags in front of the prince if she didn't get home, so she runs out of the palace, loses one of those glass slippers, and gets back home, and sure enough, She's back to her old life, but the prince finds the glass slipper and goes on a search for this special girl, tries that slipper on all of the ladies that he can find until finally it fits Cinderella, and he marries her, and they live happily ever after. And that's what we all want, right? Unfortunately, that's not all of our stories. That's not everybody's stories. Sometimes the story goes like this. Once upon a time, I fell in love with a person I thought was really a great person, but then they cheated on me. They were abusive toward me and the kids. They abandoned me, and we never saw them again, and so we live in this sad disappointment of our story. And if that's you, I want to give you a verse. Psalm 34, 18 because God knows all things, and he knows about our broken hearts. And it says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Maybe you're here today, and you have a broken heart, and God says, I got you. I love you. Maybe you are here today and you would say, I, I have, I'm messed up big time in my marriage. I have so many regrets and I'm willing to admit it and I'm asking God to please help me. I want you to know that God is close to those who are of a contrite heart. And here in this church, I assure you that the people here are not here to judge you or condemn you because that would come back to all of us. Did you know that? We are here to help you thrive and walk 
in the goodness of God and in the forgiveness of God. He loves us unconditionally and that's why this whole thing works. You know, the truth is if one or two one of two persons in a marriage refuses to change, to invest in the marriage, it will not succeed. But to those who have a broken heart, God says, I'm here. I'm here. So we come to our text, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Let's begin. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again, and he, as, as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now make no mistake, these Pharisees are not Jesus' friend. It's, it's, it implies that because they ask him a question to test him. They want him to answer this question because their goal would be to weaken his influence and his popularity. And they, they, they know this idea. Human beings have always had a hard time keeping everything together. Families have not been easy to manage. We, we don't get it right. There's a lot of brokenness and a lot of sadness when it comes to family. But, but they, so they asked them this question. You know, it's interesting that the question they asked him was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Here these men are, the leaders of the nation, they are the primary influencers of the culture, and they have before them this incredible teacher, Jesus himself, who, who has taken the nation by storm because of his, his, his powerful teaching and his miracles, and, and they have an opportunity to ask a question. They don't ask, they don't say to Jesus, hey Jesus, we've noticed that so many people are hurting and struggling in their marriages and in their families, and there's a lot of brokenness. Jesus, what do you have to teach us? How can we be better at loving and serving our wives? How can we be better at supporting the people in their brokenness? How? That's not what they ask. These guys, they're quick to ask for Jesus to justify divorce. And Jesus is courageous because he holds grace in one hand and truth in the other. We live in a day where we want everything to be okay. Your truth is fine truth. We don't, there's a difference between judging and condemning and admitting this isn't working, something's wrong in this situation and we gotta admit it. Jesus is not shy. He holds strong. He refuses to answer their question. He, he knows that divorce is, is, is a part of the world. And they want him to immediately jump from the concept of marriage to endorsing a quick ending to a marriage called divorce. And Jesus refuses to do that. When I first came to Springfield many years ago, I went to meet and visit with the mayor. And I'll never forget it. I sat in his office and I asked the mayor, he says, Mayor, you know, our, we want our church to be relevant to Springfield and to be a, 
a, a, a good, good thing for Springfield. What, what would you hope that churches like ours would do to make this a better place? Immediately, he gave me two answers. He said, number one, whatever you can do to keep marriages together, keep them together, because divorce is one of the primary sources of poverty in our, in our city and in the hurt of our children. And then he says, secondly, I want to encourage you to help make it possible for kids to learn to read because we are now building prisons based upon our prediction of how many kids will not learn to read. Those are two things that you as a church could do. If you could contribute to the strengthening of marriages uh, and the helping of children in their effort to learn to read, I said, we'll do our best. Here's the mayor. The mayor immediately knew the divorce is not the right answer. Um, why did these Pharisees bring this topic up to Jesus? I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem, and the last time a prophet spoke on the topic of divorce, his name was John the Baptist. He was clear and direct and even told the, 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 the King Herod, you, you're wrong. You are married to your your brother's wife, that is wrong. Well, that offended everybody. It offended especially his wife, who was kind of enjoying being married to the king and, and for some reason decided to trade off her first husband. And anyway, it, it so disturbed them that John the Baptist lost his head because he spoke truth. Maybe we could get Jesus to bring this topic up again. It worked for John and got him out of the way. Maybe we could get Jesus out of the way if we get him to declare what he believes. The other thing that's going on here is, but Jesus immediately refuses to answer the question, which is very typical of Jesus. He, he often asks a question in answer to a question. And here was the question. He answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Okay, so Jesus knows also that in his day, divorce had become such a casual option because there were two major teachings on the topic of divorce as they looked at the, even the exception clauses and the reasoning for divorce as God gave the writing of divorce. And, and there was one group that said, nope, they were very conservative, no divorce. The other one was very progressive, very liberal, and their, their opinion was, well, as long as you got that certificate, you're good to go, and you can divorce for whatever reason. I mean, if your wife just stops being a good cook, you can, you can get rid of her. It, whatever, they were so liberal. And their, their intention, perhaps, was to get him to declare where he was in this great discussion on divorce because wherever he landed, he would alienate a whole group of people which would minimize his influence and his popularity. And so Jesus is careful. So he tells them, verse five, it's because of the hardness of your heart he wrote you this uh, precept. Yeah, Moses, God gave to Moses, Moses gave to the people. This whole concept of divorce. And now we're arguing about how to end marriage here. 
of all the things we can discuss about the fabric of culture in our society and families and how people are being hurt or supported by marriage. You want to talk about divorce. He says, not going to go there. He says, Moses, he gave you this because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I mean, Jesus, I want to go back to the original vision. What are we talking about here? How to end things? I want us to go back and review the glory and the wonder and the beauty of marriage as God designed it and understand that God owns marriage. In verse 10, the disciples, um, when they got to the house, asked him again about this matter. They wanted to know a little bit more. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and, and marries another, she commits adultery. And I, 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 I hear this discussion often because in this, in this discussion, once again, we're looking to fix blame on somebody so that, the, uh, so that we can all be free to go do what we want to do. And it hurts. So I've got three things to tell you about marriage. Jesus says, hey, I don't want to talk about divorce. I want to talk about marriage. I want to talk about God's plan for marriage. The the first thing we got to know is that marriage is difficult. And if you're sitting by your wife today, do not say amen at this point, okay? Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, there's a beautiful discussion about the difference between marriage as a contract, a consumer contract, and marriage as a covenant, okay? That's a big discussion. But, but boy, we live in a society that's all about the consumer contract. Man, I'm going to love you as long as you're, you, I like you. I, Marriage is supposed to fulfill me. Marriage is supposed to satisfy me. Marriage is supposed to make me happy. And as long as you do all of that for me, then we're good to go. But the moment I don't feel loved, I don't feel satisfied, I don't feel fulfilled, well, I don't know. Covenant, on the other hand, is a promise. It's it's a promise that says, before God and these people that I vow, I promise I will love you under every and all circumstances. The truth is, in his book, Tim Keller talks about the fact that marriage has fallen out of, out of popularity with Americans. Um, over the last 70 years in America, we have seen a decrease in people's satisfaction with marriage. Divorce rates are up in 1970. 89% of births were to married parents, but today only 60% of babies born to, uh, are born to married uh, people, people married to each other. Actually, marriage has fallen out of favor. In 1960, 72% of American adults were married, and today that has dropped to 45 percent. 
And then I'm gonna quote Tim Keller who says this, all of this shows an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture. And this is especially true of younger adults. They believe their chances of having a good marriage are not great. And even if a marriage is stable, um, there is this horrifying prospect that they will become sexually boring. That is why many aim in the middle, uh, for the middle in between marriage and mere sexual encounters and they, they choose cohabitation. The practice has grown exponentially in the last three decades. Today, more than half of all the people lived together before getting married. In 1960, virtually no one did. One quarter of all unmarried women between the ages of 25 and 39 are currently living with a partner, and by their late 30s, over 60% will have done so. Driving this practice are several widespread beliefs. One is the assumption that most marriages are unhappy, After all, the reasoning goes, 50% of all marriages end in divorce, and surely the other 50%, they must be miserable. Living together before marriage, many argue, improves your chances of making a good marriage choice. It helps you discover whether you whether you, you are compatible before you take the plunge. It's a way to discover if the other person can really keep your interest, if the chemistry is strong enough. Everyone I know has gotten married who has gotten married quickly, and they failed to live to, because and they failed to live together before have gotten a divorce. That's that's people's assumption, and this is promoted widely in the stories that are being told. So for many people, the idea of sexual purity before marriage and sexual fidelity in marriage is an old-fashioned idea. And yet the scriptures say, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. That's a warning. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God is viewing and he has an opinion about how we conduct ourselves in the area of sexuality. The biblical pattern is to commit oneself to a spouse in a sacred vow before God and people. That's very unpopular. Uh, Tim Keller goes on, the surprising goodness of marriage. Listen to this. A substantial body of evidence indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. Cohabitation is an understandable response from those who experience their own parents' painful divorces, but the facts indicate that the cure may be worse than the disease. Other common assumptions are wrong as well. While it's true that some 45% of marriages end in divorce, by far the greatest percentage of divorces happen to those who marry before the age of 18, drop out of high school, have a baby together before they're married. These are the people that experience the highest levels of divorce. So if you are a reasonably educated person with a decent income, you come from an intact family and are religious and marry after 25 without having a baby first, your chances of divorce are indeed low. Many young adults argue for cohabitation because they feel 
They should own a home and be financially secure before they marry. The assumption is that marriage is a financial drain. But studies point to what has been called the surprising economic benefits of marriage. In a 1992 study of retirement data, it shows that individuals who were continuously married, that's even those who were married, divorced, but married again, had 75% more wealth at retirement than those who never married or who divorced and did not remarry. Even more remarkably, married men have been shown to earn 10 to 40% more than do single men with similar education and job histories. Why is this? It goes on. Some of this is because married people experience greater physical and mental health. Also, marriage provides a profound shock absorber that helps you navigate disappointments, illness, and other difficulties. You recover your equilibrium faster, but the increased earnings probably also uh, uh, come from what scholars call marital social norms. Studies show that spouses hold one another to greater levels of personal responsibility and self-discipline than friends or other family members. Like if I go out and spend some money, as a married man, I gotta tell my wife. You know what I'm saying? You know, um, we're getting all the wrong messages in our culture about marriage. I love that Jesus comes up against the cultural norms of his day. And even though he acknowledges that marriage and divorce is an issue, he casts a vision for the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. Being married doesn't make you unhappy. Um, All surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high. About 61 to 62%. And there has been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most strikingly of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy with those unhappy in their marriage um, will become happy within five years if they stay married and don't get divorced. This led University of Chicago sociologist Linda Waite to say the benefits of divorce have been oversold. You know, I also want to just add this. Among those people who are married and who pray together every day, the statistic of divorce drops to less than 1%. Did you you hear me say that? Now listen, I always want to make it reachable, okay? Maybe you're here today and you're saying, well, I'm just not that comfortable about praying with my wife all the time. Well, get comfortable is what I have to say, first of all. That's a pastoral admonition. But, but here's the deal. 
do you have to eat every day? You know, there is this beautiful tradition of bowing your heads and praying together before you share a meal. Do you know how powerful that is in your life and in your marriage? To spend a moment and say, I love you, honey. Anything I need to pray for you about. A br- We're not talking spending hours and hours together on your knees praying at some sort of shrine. No. The impact of simply praying with your spouse every day is profound. We can do that. Number two, people think marriage, it's hard. It is hard, we get it, okay? Number two, marriage is actually God's gift to people. When you take a look at God's design for marriage, you realize that God does not think marriage is unimportant. In fact, it was God who thought up marriage and performed the first marriage in the garden. He brought Adam and Eve together. Why do we say marriage is a divine institution? It's because people didn't think it up. God did. God owns the whole idea of marriage. When you understand that, that, that marriage is something God designed and gave as a beautiful gift to us, then we will treat marriage differently. We will treat it with respect. We, we will invest in our marriage. You'll take time to clean it up when it gets dirty and handle it with care. Because this is what God did. Please understand, this, this message is is designed to recapture the beauty of God's design for marriage, but not to condemn anyone. One of the most important truths in the Bible is that we are all fallen. None of us can say that we've gotten relationships, sexuality, or morality right. It's only by God's grace that anyone can live out the ideals of Scripture. There is no perfect marriage All marriages require massive amounts of patience, forgiveness, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. It's not all romance and sentimental feelings, although romance and sentimental feelings need to be a part of it. It is God's gift. If you've struggled in this area, do not feel condemned. Commit yourself to pursuing God's goodness and receive his blessing. Um, When a marriage takes place, it's different than just um, the cohabitating because it acknowledges that marriage belongs to God and is a gift of God. And so we, we put ourselves under the authority of God when we establish ourselves in a marriage relationship and in front of God and in front of witnesses, we, we make vows and promises to one another. 
it's not the same as cohabitating. I mean, I do weddings. Well, if, if you two, before these witnesses and before God, are here to pledge yourselves to each other as husband and wife, hold each other's hands. Do you take him to be your husband? Do you take her to be your wife? And before, before the witnesses and before God, I do, I do. You, anybody ever... You know that, right? We all know that. And then I, I just love the, you know, the, the, the marriage promises that are made. So do you take, let's say the man, do you, Mr. Groom, take this woman, the bride beside you, to be your lawful wedded wife? You, then you need to repeat after me. I take you to be my lawful wedded wife, to heaven to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us, prom- uh, us part, I give you my promise. It's a beautiful thing. It's meaningful. It's binding. It's healthy. It's a covenant. It is not, I'm going to stay with you until I don't like you. And some of you here know how painful it is for someone to choose to abandon the marriage you pledge yourself to. And that's why your heart is broken. But that is also why God has come close. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he talks about how it's so important for us to to walk in the Spirit. And he uses languages like you need to put off and you need to put on. It's almost like changing clothes. So there, there are some clothes, some things you need to put off. Put off deceitful lusts. Don't be driven by your own personal desires, the things that you crave. Not everything you crave is good for you. Did you know that? We we live in a culture where it's like you gotta be true to your heart. Are you kidding me? You're probably gonna be 500 pounds, have diabetes, and die early. Don't do everything you want to do. There's some beauty in the discipline of good decisions. So put off. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4, put off lying, put off anger, put off stealing, put off evil speech, put off wrong attitudes, put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and love. This is, man, this is a recipe for a dynamic marriage right here. Um, Anger and evil speaking, these are toxic in a family. Speaking to each other in evil ways and with anger tears down each other, tears tears down a family. Kids don't want to be at home if it's full of toxicity and evil speaking. If only families would embrace and put on what we've been instructed to put on through the power of the Holy Spirit, kindness and tenderheartedness. And love. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. This is what God wants for us. 
Um, I have heard some people say, well, um, I think I married the wrong person. Tim Keller addresses this in a section in his book entitled, You Never Marry the Right Person. Okay, you actually never marry. I mean, the Bible explains, I'm going to quote him, the the Bible explains why the quest for compatibility seems so impossible. As a pastor, I've heard couples say over and over, shouldn't love love shouldn't be this hard it should come naturally in response i always say something like why why believe that would someone who wants to play professional baseball say it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball or would someone who wants to write the greatest american novel of her generation say it shouldn't be hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative the understandable retort is but this is not baseball in literature this is love Love should just come naturally if two people are compatible, if they, truly, if they are truly soulmates. But the truth is, love is more than an emotion. It is an action. A commitment to love unconditionally. To forgive when it's hard. To be patient when you don't feel patient. To be kind. The answers are all in front of us. Jesus says, you guys are influencers and leaders. Are, are you going to put on your Instagram feed, Jesus gives freedom to those who have a certificate of divorcement? I want you to put on there The God who created us gifts us with this amazing thing called marriage that God himself will help us thrive in. Marriage actually is an illustration of God's covenant with us. Romans 5, 10 to 11, listen to this. This is how beautiful and attractive we are, okay? God looks down at all of us, is what he has to say. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And God says, let me tell you about a covenant love. Why is it possible for us to have a relationship with the holy and perfect God? Because when we were his enemies, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And I want your marriages. I want them to be full of romance and joy, and, but I want them to also declare through thick and thin, through the ups and downs, through the good and the bad and the ugly, I will stay with you. I will forgive you. I will continue to be here for you. Because I am the God 
who loves you with an everlasting love, who paid the price. I loved you before you were lovable. It is my love that will transform you. And Jesus sat down one day with his disciples just before he was betrayed and crucified and before the resurrection. It says in Matthew 28, verse 27, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink it all of you for this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. When we choose to love when it's hard and difficult, when we choose to forgive when we're offended, we demonstrate the great love of God and prove with God's help, this can happen. I want to invite you to take out the communion. And uh, whenever we share communion, we, we do three things. We remember, examine, and proclaim. So let's, let's just remember, what are we remembering here today? 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to love you with a love that is so powerful. I'm I'm going to a cross. And on that cross, he absorbed all of the evil this world could throw at him. And he even cried out from the cross as he looked around at the people that were inflicting this pain on him. As he looked out and saw his disciples who were all running away. This is what what Jesus says, because this is the kind of love God has for us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, I I gave my body, and it was broken for you. So I want you to remember every time you take communion, I want you to remember how much I paid. And then, in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would, because we're going to remember what Jesus did. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to be, we're going to examine ourselves. Number one, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? No one can love you like God. No one has loved you like Jesus. No one has paid as much as Jesus did. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? 
And maybe you're sitting there right now and you say, the truth is I, I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. Why don't you pray right now? Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need my sins forgiven and I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin. And then you died and you rose again. And so I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. And for some of you, there may be other things going on. It's time right now to just say, God, here's the thing I need to talk to you about. I've been messing up in this area. And, and I'm, I can't promise you anything, but I'm asking you to please forgive me and help me because I want to follow you. And then lastly, we proclaim by taking communion today, we will proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Would you stand, please? We're going to share communion together.